This episode of New Politics was recorded on October 13, 2020, and produced on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the 2020 budget in all of its glorious shades of red ink, Anthony Albanese's sink or swim budget reply, and it was good enough for Paul Keating, so it should be good enough for the Prime Minister. We have a good look at Scott Morrison's recession, the recession we didn't really have to have. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, long-haul ice trucker. It's the first budget of the Morrison government that was elected way back in May 2019, and it's also the first budget since the coronavirus commenced. Josh Frydenberg's budget is going to run at a massive deficit of $213 billion, and that's at the most optimistic of all optimistic levels. It's based on a coronavirus vaccine becoming available in October 2021, as well as all internal borders within Australia being opened up by then, and the assumption that the economy will grow by 4.25% in 2021, a figure that wasn't even achieved during the last mining boom, and a figure that hasn't been reached since 1999, that's over 21 years ago. The government just had to spend money during this pandemic. There's absolutely no question about that. But there's a lot of people that have been left behind within this budget. There's tax cuts for people on higher incomes. There's nothing for lower income families or the unemployed. There's not much there for women. Childcare and early education, there's not much there either. And humanities courses at universities will double in cost. The government keeps wanting the economy to return to the way that it was before, but new economic thinking is needed, not the old neoliberalist ways that haven't been able to support national economies during a time of crisis. Perhaps Josh Frydenberg wasn't joking when he said that he'd look to Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan for inspiration. That's a comment that he made a couple of months ago. I don't think he was, and I don't think he has the intellectual capacity to realise the the flaws in that system, that the system has been well tested for the last 30 years and has been found wanting. It excludes way too many people. It enriches non-productive people. It encourages corruption. It encourages poor government. It encourages the breakdown of necessary services. I don't think Josh has it in him to see this. It's not about being right-wing or left-wing either, that, you know, I, I think... If you look at it objectively, the the right wing has some very good ideas that, if applied properly, might just work. The idea of individual entrepreneurship, I think, is, is something that should be encouraged, but they don't really encourage it, do they? It's it's all right for established money and nouveau riche based on non-productive economic models. The other thing we have to remember about the budget is that very little of the last seven budgets have been passed. I can't remember how many actually weren't passed. And I'd be surprised if this one finally gets through in all its ideas. I know that the university uh, reforms seem to have gone through with uh, Centre Alliance, but it'd be interesting to see what doesn't make it through. Well, the past seven budgets haven't actually been approved. I'd say that this one probably will go through the Senate. The 2019 budget, that was actually announced on the day that the election was called, so, or the day before the election was called. So this particular budget has got a deficit of $213 billion. Ultimately, there will be $966 billion in national government debt, or 44% of gross domestic product. 
that's not actually a, a, a big deal when you compare it with economies around the world. Before the pandemic started, the government debt to GDP ratio was around 1% or 2%, I think got up to around 10%, compared to many other countries in the OECD, which hover between 50% and 150% of GDP. Australia's not travelling too badly. The main benefit that will come out of this is within the public discourse about debts and deficits. We won't see the LNP complaining about debts and deficits for a long, long time. The figures don't play in their favour. Uh, and the other thing that's not fully comprehended or said by a lot of the media is that two-thirds of this debt was before the pandemic. They grew it vastly quickly after 2013. They didn't actually change the rate of borrowing, I don't think. I think they were just able to hide it behind the pandemic. And budgets in Australia are always highly political documents. They do have to boost confidence in the economy, especially at this particular point of time in history. But they also have to spend money in the right areas. This one doesn't seem to spend the money in the right areas. When the coronavirus pandemic commenced in Australia... The federal government did say that it was going to be a non-ideological government as far as its responses are concerned, whether that's political responses or economic or definitely health-wise. They said all of their ideology was going to be parked at the door. This is a very ideological budget. It's an uncreative budget. It's more in line with getting the economy back to business as usual. But new thinking is needed. We've mentioned this on quite a few podcasts in the past. The old economy just isn't returning. So it's a highly ideological budget. It's anti-women. It's anti-traditional, all of the traditional foes of the Liberal National Party. Humanities courses will be boosted up to $14,000 in hex fees per year. This is supposedly an incentive for people to do job-focused courses, something which universities aren't really meant to be all about. So what if you've got a case where a humanities student, they've got no interest at all in science or mathematics or nursing, what are they meant to do? Just give up their appreciation of humanities and then go and do a science or a nursing course? It just doesn't make sense. I think Dan Tehan, the unimpressive Minister for Education, all his degrees, as far as I can tell, are humanities degrees. It's foreign affairs and things like that. I said that he wants people to be able to get jobs. Now, a good arts degree or a good general science degree will get you plenty of jobs. They're not about training you up to the industry standard. They're about training your intelligence. They're about training how you think. They're about analysis. They're about appreciation of culture and art and people. They're about thinking. This is what, of course, it seems the current LNP don't want. They don't want you to think because when you start thinking about what they're doing, it doesn't add up. And this, again, isn't a left-wing, right-wing perspective. This is a perspective of looking at it as what are they trying to achieve, how are they achieving it, and are they achieving it? And what they're telling you and what is happening is often two different things. Now, a lot of our listeners might be thinking, well, look, why are you so focused on this, the increase in the hex fees for humanities courses when there's so many other things within the budget that can be attacked? And that, for sure, there's a lot of things within this budget that can be attacked. For me, this entire idea of having a go at the humanities, doubling the, the hex fees for those courses, like it shows where this government is at. It's not, not actually going to raise a huge amount of money for the government, certainly not in the short term, but it shows where the ideological positioning of this government is. Like It's like this old 
old cultural war from many, many years ago. And it gives us an opportunity to look at the performance of the Centre Alliance as well, because they're the ones that supported this in the Senate in conjunction with One Nation. And it's an absolute shame on them. Of course, within the Senate, you're always going through a trading process where you give something up in return for something else. But they got virtually nothing in return. They gave up too much for too little. They ended up getting a 3.5% growth in places for South Australian universities. Now, that's compared to 2.5% within the overall package. So that means that they received an increase of 1% of university places and there's also some guarantees that failing students won't get penalised in South Australia so severely. They also asked for a reinstatement of the 10% discount for upfront HEX payments and that's a discount which benefits students from higher income families. So what's going on within the Centre Alliance? It feels to me like the end of the Democrats. Meg Lees went in and against the majority of her party's feelings agreed to a GST on what she thought was a good deal. It was not a good deal at all. I can't quite remember how long she lasted, but it was not 12 months before she was overthrown. Then the Democrats basically imploded on themselves. They still exist. You can still join their Democrats and they still run in elections, but they're not the force they used to be. Democrats, of course, were formed by a group who included the well-known and uh, I suppose you could call him charismatic Don Chip. Centre Alliance had the well-known Nick Xenophon. Now, Xenophon left federal politics a couple of elections ago, interestingly enough, claiming he wanted to keep on South Australia. A lot of people thought that it was because he probably wouldn't get his Senate seat back. But without him as a focal point, Centre Alliance have struggled to retain any kind of presence. If Twitter is anything to go by, Rebecca Sharkey is one of the most unpopular politicians in Australia at the moment, particularly in the seat of Mayo, having successfully seen off Liberal candidate Georgina Downer. She's just gone and rolled over to one of the more unpopular liberal policies. Well, Rebecca Sharkey, she actually did do a humanities course at Flinders University. She's supposedly independent, but she actually was a member of the Liberal Party. She was a Liberal Party staffer as well. So maybe not as independent as people like to think she is. Minds change. Uh, People move away from parties. But it gets suspicious when, you know, I'm independent of this party and then you start voting with it all the time on specious arguments too. I get uh, an independent votes in favour of confidence in the in the government and a few other things, but this is the type of thing where they could have really made a stand and, and be shown to be the types of party I think people thought they were voting for. Including the budget measures, this Liberal National Government will have $385 billion at its disposal for recovery measures, for stimulus packages. There's a whole lot of areas there where they can do some wonderful things within the economy. But this budget overall is just not doing that. They're hell-bent on this idea of returning the the economy back to the way that it was before, but that's just not going to happen. It's all about, I think... Maintaining the status quo, not because the status quo was any good, but because it benefits a small number of their supporters. The reason that we haven't embraced renewables as much as a country like Australia should have is because companies like Fortescue Metals and um, Rio Tinto and those types of companies make a lot of money from it and it's within their interest. And they pay, they pay a lot of money to the Liberal Party through various, through direct donation, promotions through think tanks like the IPA, it seems, 
to keep the money where the money has notionally been for the last maybe even up to 200 years. You can't beat the flow of, of history, and I think these people will be left behind and Australia with it. Budgets are normally here today, gone tomorrow. They provide an impetus for the government of the day, but we'll probably forget about this budget in a few weeks' time. But I guess the most important factor here is how have, is all of this going to sustain the economy and keep it from collapsing? There are questions about what will happen with the JobKeeper program after it expires in March 2021. Ideologically, this kind of government is opposed to this type of program, and it will be interesting to see what happens or what replaces the JobKeeper program after the date. There are other key stimulus programs that have been announced over the past six months, but they're yet to be implemented. For me, this is a budget that largely keeps on track with the ideological pursuits and habits of this government and it's a, and it's largely a missed opportunity to create economic conditions more suited to the circumstances. Given the assumption of a, a vaccine by October 2021, it's not impossible, let's be fair. Uh, and now, one thing we got to remember is that it takes three to four years for most vaccines or most medications to go through. They need to be tested. They need to be passed fairly stringent or very stringent um, government requirements. They need to be worked out how to be manufactured in a way that is uh, economically viable for the company who did them. We have never had a successful vaccine against any coronavirus. That includes things like SARS. But again, more resources are being thrown at this one than ever before. October 2021 is not out of the question. And, you know, and I'll be very happy if it comes out by October 21 and it's successful. Oh, you know, we, we will talk about that in, in positive terms. From a budgeting point of view, I think it's a little bit too confident. I, I suspect it'll be closer to 20 two or 23 before we can even look at these types of things and that's where his projection should have started. So that is definitely one issue to look at the the arrival of the vaccine, the timing of that, if it does actually indeed arrive at some point soon. The other factor is the 4.25% prediction in, in growth. Now, the last time we had anything like those figures was back in 1999. It was the first quarter of the year. Uh, growth was at five, Annual growth was at 5%. That was a pretty good economic year, but we just haven't had anything like that since that, since that time. And after a recession arrives, now there is a boost in, in productivity. There is a boost in growth. So it's just a question of how long this recession goes on for, whether it ends up becoming a depression as well. For the economy to start kicking back after six or seven months and for it to reach 4.25%, that's a heroic assumption. And I think a lot of other economists agree with that sentiment as well. Especially given that the last three treasurers we've had haven't actually been very good at promoting growth. Again, if it if it happens, we will acknowledge it and analyze it and and pr possibly even praise it. They've shut out fifty one percent of the population. Now, some of that population too. This isn't fully comprehended by a lot of people. Some of that population vote liberal, and that makes a difference. You know, women are a very important part of the economy. I've seen analysis of this budget saying that it's really to push women back into the home. Good luck with that. I don't think that'll happen. Um, and I don't think it should, by the way. 
It's a dud budget, unless some rabbits come out of the hat. It's a budget a gambling addict might do if they were feeling particularly lucky. It's not a sensible, sober budget looking at improving the whole of Australia. I think that's going to cost them a lot more political skin than they've already lost. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at Anthony Albanese and his budget reply speech. Budget Week is all about the numbers and finances, but it's also about politics and perceptions. And the budget reply is a tradition where the leader of the opposition can provide an alternative economic response to the nation. Budgets are important documents for the future of a government, but the budget reply speech for opposition leaders is is also important, but in a different way. It's not about numbers or even the ideas that they're presenting because they're just not in government. But it's about shoring up their own leadership, offering a blueprint for change when they return to government, but also providing hope to other MPs within that political party and people in the electorate that support that political party as well. Anthony Albanese hasn't been performing so well since the pandemic started, but his budget reply speech focused on labour values, areas such as universal childcare and a focus on reforming the national energy grid. It was a competent budget reply. It ticked all the boxes of Labor values, but it didn't seem to have the zing or the standout moments. We're almost halfway through the electoral cycle. Will the budget reply provide an impetus for Labor to work towards the next election and shut down Albanese's critics, or will it become something else? I saw he had innovated some of the base people there were people who were really impressed with how he'd performed and you know the the elbow of fighting tories seemed to be back opposition's a hard gig made easier by a media that will give you airtime which labor doesn't get a lot of or when it does it's always negative it seems Every time uh, New South Wales ex-minister Milton Orkopoulos is mentioned, he's always mentioned as ex-Labor member or ex-Labor politician. Whereas if it's a scandal on the Liberal side, it's always politician without the party being mentioned. You can always tell what side it is. I think Labor is trying its very best. Labor has some fairly impressive people on its side. Uh, I think it's got some people who seem impressive but possibly aren't either, but government normally sorts that out. But, you know, I I do think that there's a a good team there. Whether they can cut through and whether the public will buy it is a whole other thing. We're way overdue for the restructure that has traditionally happened every 20 or 30 years with both parties. Really, the Liberal Party restructured when John Howard took over the first time last time the Labor Party really restructured was probably when Bill Hayden took over in 77. But they were both very quiet restructures and they were to do with the new economic thinking at the time. 
Well, it's almost like politics just moves so quickly for any sort of structural reform for any political party, unless the day after an election loss, you decide, okay, we're going to be out of office for the next six years. Let's sit down and start reforming the political party from day one. That's an unusual predicament for a political party to decide. And I, I can't remember the last time that sort of process started happening because the day after you lose an election, you start preparing to win the next election. And that's the way that it usually works. And and with that idea of the speed of politics, I noticed that Anthony Albanese, the key point that he, he focused his budget reply on was universal childcare. Now, we haven't actually got universal childcare within his proposal. It's to fund 90% of childcare and early, early education. Now, early education and childcare, it's actually been in a funding mess for, for a long, long time. The sector overall is, is fairly well managed and it's got reasonable regulations now, but the funding of it has been an absolute mess ever since the Howard government changed the direct operational subsidies back in 1997. It's got a funding mix between three tiers of government, that's local councils in some cases, state governments and, and federal governments, there's subsidies, payments made to parents, subsidies made to early childhood services as well. They'd probably be better off attaching early education to the primary school sector, and I guess that's the thing that Anthony Albanese is trying to get back to. 90% of funding for childcare and early education, it's not universal, but it's getting pretty close. I think it's the right move. Childcare is hideously expensive. Yet, ironically, the people in childcare, the frontline workers in childcare are underpaid. You know, there's other expenses, of course, you've got to maintain the buildings and pay rent and uh, have the best programs that you can get, etc, etc. I don't think anybody really minds the expense of it. It's more, where is it going? And you're right, it's a, it's a total mess. There's a lot of money that doesn't seem to appear quite where it should. And this is, of course, not to disparage individual childcare centres, the majority of whom do a really excellent job under challenging circumstances. It still needs more transparency. And I think it's another one of those areas that should be just straight out nationalised, just for fairness, for equality, for uh, the ability to hold standards across the country without unfair advantage to wealthier areas, etc., etc. Well, one other main area that Albanese focused upon within the budget reply speech was creating a more streamlined national energy and electricity grid. It's not to nationalise the grid, but create a system that will harness all the energy sources, including renewable energies, and harnessing that into a more efficient network that will deliver $40 billion worth of benefits to the Australian economy. And I guess the main reason why Albanese is proposing that is that it's in response to the government's mismanagement of energy supply over the past seven years and its failure to develop any meaningful or comprehensive policy for the energy sector. And again, a great idea. New South Wales sold off its uh, retail sector so that now most of your electricity bill in New South Wales goes to paying director's fees and consultancy fees and doesn't actually go to the service of electricity. I think that's a great idea from Labor to put it back. And again, it's about access. It's about having a stable electrical network so that whether you're right next to the generator or you know 100 kilometres away, you can get a good, clean, uninterrupted supply. I think it's a great idea. And I think it should, again, I think it should be government-based rather than private. 
budgets and budget replies they're all always political documents and the way that it's received within the by the public that's going to be a political process scott morrison has labeled anthony albanese's budget reply as divisive <laughs> and to me that's a bit rich coming from one of the most divisive and most disruptive prime ministers we've had in a long 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 time so Anthony Albanese, he promoted the idea of universal childcare. I can't see that much division in, in that sort of process. He's proposed uh, reforming the national electricity grid. I can't see that as being too divisive. What, what was Scott Morrison going on about here when he was talking about the budget reply speech being a divisive document? It's a little bit, I don't know if you call it, you know, psychological projection or if it's more of the childhood taunt of, I know you are, but what am I? Scott Morrison has News Corp on his side and Channel 9 on his side, which includes Fairfax. There's been some good stuff in the Sydney Morning Herald, I'll happily to admit that. But mostly, he gets a soft run in the press. I think he wants to posit Anthony Albanese and Labor as being divisive so he can come across as a unifying leader. I don't quite know if the public is that dumb. I think he's been terribly divisive. I think he's been terribly uh, poor at communicating a message, and I don't think he has a unifying bone in his body. I think he can only work through division and and argument, not through consensus and discussion. Albanese and the Labor Party, it seems like they have worked their way towards a sustainable political and economic narrative, but There's still a lot of low-level murmuring behind the scenes about whether Albanese will lead the Labor Party to the next election, and and I think he probably will do that, unless everything changes dramatically, and that's always got to be a possibility within politics. Again, we've mentioned this before, but they're not performing badly within the polls, but it's always a question of whether they've got the right team in place that can communicate their political and economic narrative in a way that connects more clearly with the electorate. Do they need to sharpen their attacks on the government? And they've got so much material to work with on this government. There's corruption, there's mismanagement, there's poor ministerial performances. During the past week, in the lead up to Albanese's budget reply, there was a great deal of speculation within the media that this is a make or break moment for Albanese and it had to signal a turning point for the Labor Party where they had to start taking it up to the government if they wanted to have any decent chance of winning at the next election. And the question always has to be, well, we're in the middle part of the electoral cycle. It's 18 months into this term of government. What has the Labor Party actually been doing for the past 18 months? And why is it taking this long to start taking it up to the government? Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they've been doing nothing for the past 18 months. And it is very, very hard work being in the opposition. But why wait until now halfway through the electoral cycle. I'm wondering if part of the tactic was to let the government fall over and then they've watched them fall over a few times and then had no consequence. So they've spent a couple of months working out an attack strategy given that the government's going to be propped up. I've said before, Morrison isn't a popular figure in the way that John Howard was and all our Labor voting listeners have just let out a snort of derision, but really he was very popular amongst a certain segment of the community. He certainly nowhere near a Bob Hawke or a Kevin Rudd. He's more of a tolerated, well, you know, he's there and it's a tough job and someone's got to do it and at the moment it's him type grudging acceptance rather than, than than a love. I think Labor 
are using the three years between electoral cycles more cautiously in a sense than than perhaps people want them to. And I think they're going on a slow and steady wins the race strategy rather than a um, Tony Abbott, say, just oppose everything and let the consequences fall where they do, which electorally was successful for Tony Abbott, but in every other sense wasn't. And I think Labor realised that too. Well, I guess that you, you know you can't start beating the drum from day one because you get sick and tired of beating that drum for a three-year period and making as much noise and trying to get as much political capital as possible. But I guess that's another way of looking at it or another perspective. Why should Labor use all of its political energy, all of its political processes and, and resources to attack a government in the first 18 months of a political cycle when all the energy should be in the second half of the cycle? Like People forget what probably what happened in September 29 or August 2019. By the time the next election arrives, which could be 2021 or 2022, all of that is old history. People can't remember a thing. They won't be able to remember a thing from a year ago or two years ago. But I guess it's that overall perception of competence that ends up being the the big sticking point for the electorate. There's, there's talk of an early election. I don't believe it. I don't think... If he was three or four seats ahead and you could afford to lose two seats and still scrape through and maybe improve your position in the Senate. But I don't think the people who are doing the thinking in the Liberal Party and for all the criticism we might give them, they're very good at elections. I don't think that with only one seat up for grabs, he'd be game because you only need to lose two and you're done. And I think the pork barrelling, the community grants and all of that, I don't think that'll work this time. I think that was your one shot because there were seats that missed out who'll remember that type of thing. You know, I'm not going to say they won't call one, but if they do call one, one, I'd be surprised, and two, I'd wonder what they're hiding up their sleeve to get that net gain of a couple of seats to maintain their position. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, we look at Scott Morrison's recession, the recession we really didn't need to have. The Australian economy is now officially in recession, but there are many in the media that are keen to let everyone know that this has all been caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Even though all the evidence suggests Australia was careering towards a recession due to the poor economic management from the Liberal National Government ever since they returned to office in 2013. The economy was already in per capita recession in late 2019 and reached negative growth for the March 2020 quarter after narrowly avoiding a negative quarter in December 2019. And many economists were predicting a recession was unavoidable and this was way before the coronavirus hit in March this year. Here's Scott Morrison trying his best. Well, this is why we've designed the budget the way we have, Lee, and this is why we've done it at such a scale. We're dealing with a, 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 an enormous challenge when it comes to the coronavirus uh, recession and, and the pandemic that, that caused it. And here's the ABC doing their best to come to the rescue, first of all pitching to an economist. 
Andrew, Anthony Albanese used the term the Morrison recession again tonight, and we've heard him using that uh, in recent weeks. Is anyone really going to buy that all of this is Scott Morrison's fault? You know, what's the opposition leader hoping to achieve um, with, with that line? And now claiming Labor is insulting the intelligence of the Australian public. You've been using the term the Morrison recession recently. You used it again in your speech tonight. Hmm. Australians aren't stupid. They see what's happening globally. Who do you think believes it's all Scott Morrison's fault? The 1990 recession was rightly referred to as Paul Keating's recession. No one ever referred to it as the recession of 10 years of failed international neoliberal policies even though that's what primarily caused that recession and the high interest rates at the time. Despite what the media is saying, this is Morrison's recession. I'm just surprised that it's taken Labor so long to start using the term when it's been so evident all along. It's always circumstances, you know, is the bushfire recession. We forget that too. You know, after the bushfire, oh, well, no wonder it's in recession, the bushfires. But the bushfires weren't the major driving factor behind the recession. This is not at all to play down the impact the bushfires had on the communities and on the economy. They accelerated things. They, they didn't cause it. The coronavirus too. Now, and we, the other thing we should be mindful of is that bushfires followed by a pandemic is not usual government challenges. Both were avoidable. Bushfires came out because of, you know, terrible environmental policy on behalf of the, the government and the pandemic came about because of terrible health policy on behalf of the government. The economy was starting to crash. And in November, which is before the full impact of the bushfires too, we'd already hit that technical recession. I think we would have hit full recession in probably the May-June quarter rather than the, the March quarter and I think that's really the only difference. Well it ends up being a question of semantics. Morrison, Frydenberg, the entire Liberal Party and their friends in the media, they've already started using the term the COVID recession or the coronavirus recession. The other, other side of politics, they've started using the label the Morrison recession and we can have the arguments about which terms are more technically correct but if you look at the figures it does point more squarely at mismanagement of the economy rather than external factors. And sure, those external factors have definitely played a role, but that doesn't provide the full picture. Now, when the coronavirus commenced in March this year, the economy wasn't in recession, but it was halfway there. The March 2020 quarter that recorded negative growth, the December 2019 quarter, that narrowly avoided ne negative growth, and that was even with a big seasonal Christmas splurge. The September 2019 quarter, and that also narrowly avoided negative growth. Both of the, those particular quarters, they surprised, or the results surprised many economists who had been predicting negative growth for that six-month period. A recession is defined as two consecutive negative growth quarters and we narrowly avoided three consecutive quarters of negative growth. The per capita recession is not a commonly used term, but it's a predictive measure to let economists and governments know that the economy is in poor shape and drastic measures need to be taken to turn it around. So the facts and figures are there. The economy was in very, very poor shape before the pandemic actually hit. And I think it's very fair to use the term the Morrison recession. I saw Wayne Swan 
bristle at the accusation that his policies had baked in long-term debt, which was not true. Swan, of course, was one of the, and probably the major architect of Australia avoiding the GFC. We won't avoid this next Great Depression unless the government matures up (laughs) and realises that going down the same path is not going to work this time either. Well, all of these discussions about a recession or a depression, that that all affects the political landscape. And we can understand why the Liberal Party wants to keep referring to the COVID recession. It means that they can, yet again, outsource economic problems that they've created to someone else or something else, external factors. Uh, They were previously blaming the world economy when they were having economic difficulties during 2019, when they should have been taking responsibility for all of these problems. But that's how the political game Mm. is played. But I, I think ultimately people can see what's happening with their own eyes and they can see what's happening through their own circumstances and no political spin can cover that up. Unemployment numbers are being well hidden through the JobKeeper program at the moment and people who would normally be unemployed at least are getting some financial support But the main issue was always will come down to economic competence and management. My my belief is that we've got the wrong government in office at the wrong time. Their economic policies will probably do more harm than good for the national economy. And and the next election will still be based around who can provide better economic direction for the future. Yeah. I know that they're going to try and blame Labor. That works in the first election after you've won. It might work in the second because, you know, it's still only, you know, three or five years and you might be able to argue, well, you know, some of these were long-term things. It's not going to work on the third election. It just can't. I think, too, that Josh Frydenberg gets a lukewarm reception at best from business commentators, I think is telling. Peter Costello, who's... Treasurership looks less and less glittery the further we move away from it. Got higher praise and he ended up chair of a dying media company at the end of it. He wasn't rewarded with the plum job I think he would have liked. You know, even Matthias Cormann is being nominated for a position on the United Nations that he's got no chance of getting, I don't think, and will get it wrong if he does get it. There's talk that Josh Frydenberg is in trouble in his own seat. I don't know how true that is. I don't know anyone who lives in Kew. Uh, there's that big no riffraff sign out the front, so I'm not allowed in there. <laughs> I can't see them running on um, economic management. By the time the next election is called, it's going to be nine years of coalition government. And in my opinion, it's been a very incompetent government for most of that time. We speculated about when this next election might be called. I've, I've, my feeling is that it will be called when the government feels that the gloss about rallying around the flag and trying to get through the pandemic is starting to wear off within the electorate. Scott Morrison does have very high personal approval ratings, but that's not translating into support for the Liberal Party, which is still running at 50-50 with the Labor Party and the two-party preferred voting. Many political commentators are suggesting Labor just needs to forget about the next election. It's already done and dusted. It's all over bar the shouting and it needs to start worrying about the election after that and if we keep to the standard political timetable that will mean the 2025 election or 13 years of an incredibly incompetent government now 
no election is unwinnable. It's not done and dusted until all the votes in that election have been counted. Commentators always look at the political horizon. They look into the future and they can't imagine that it can change. They said that John Howard was going to be in office for another decade after the 2004 election victory. He actually lost at the 2007 election, the one after that. They also said that Malcolm Turnbull was going to be remaining as Prime Minister until the year 2031. That also didn't happen. We can't trust polls. The last election where every analyst just about claimed that Labor would have to win. And if you looked at the polls, it was correct. But the polls were wrong. It's like Britain. The polls in the British Parliament have been wrong. America... They're saying that uh, Joe Biden is 10 and 12 and 20 points ahead. I don't believe it. I don't. I, I believe he's ahead and I believe he's probably the better candidate. But I don't believe that it, as a lot of opposition leaders and uh, trailing prime ministers have said, the only poll that counts is the election. Well, as we like to say, opinion polls are very good at predicting the past and current electoral mm. behaviour, but they're not so good at predicting the future. There's not many opinion polls being published in Australia and at the moment, and there's, there's good reason for that. They got it so wrong in the May 2019 federal election, but still the few polls that we are receiving, that's the only electoral assessment that we have available to us. We can look at historical factors for determining what might happen at the next election. A, a normal half-Senate election can't be called until August 2021 and the government can run as late as June 2022 but whenever it's held it will get down to the respective political and economic narratives that are put out there and which ones the electorate finds more believable and more acceptable but whatever the case is there's still a long long way to go before the next election and the result at that next election will determine whether we look back at this period of time and decide whether it was the COVID recession or the Morrison recession? Yeah, I don't think history is going to be very kind to this era of Australian politics, but we'll see. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. <laughs>